Today we are continuing with our series, By the Numbers. In this episode, we're going to explore the number 10, which also symbolizes completion. The Bible is incredibly interconnected with threads that run through it from beginning to end. In this podcast, I will uncover these threads, help you dig deeper into God's truth, and inspire you to live your life with greater confidence and joy. Welcome to Bible Threads with me, Dr. Bruce Becker. From God's perspective and actions, the number 10 shows up in the Bible to demonstrate perfection. From our human perspective, the number 10 also includes the concept of obedience to our holy God, especially when the number 10 shows up in the commandments that God gave to Moses. The number 10 is used 242 times in the Bible, and the word 10th is used another 79 times. So we see that the number 10 occurs rather frequently on the pages of the Old and New Testaments. So let's take a journey from Genesis to Revelation to explore this Bible thread of the number 10. If you've been listening to the other episodes in this series, it's not going to be a surprise to you to learn that the number 10 shows up in the very first chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, just like the other numbers we've covered. But the actual word for 10 isn't in the chapter. Like the number 7, it's hidden. In God's creating activity, the phrase, God said, shows up 10 times. For example, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Is this a coincidence? I don't think so. It's God's way of saying that his creation was complete and perfect. There is one other example of the number 10 in God's creating activity. Can you figure it out? Let me give you a hint. It involves God's creation of man and woman. Ask yourself, where does the number 10 show up in the creation of the human body? Now I bet you got it. 10 fingers and 10 toes. The ones created in the image of God had 10 of each. Interesting, don't you think? When we get to Genesis chapter 5, we find something interesting about the number 10. The chapter starts out, this is the written account of Adam's line. The chapter then tells us about the 10 generations from Adam to Noah, and the patriarchs who led those generations. Here are the 10. Adam, Seth, Enos, Kynan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and then finally Noah. One thing about all of these patriarchs is that they had long lifespans. And the one who lived the longest was Methuselah, 969 years. Now, that's a long life. That reminds me of a riddle I learned when I was just a kid. The riddle went like this. Methuselah was the longest man who ever lived, died before his father did. So, how can that be? Methuselah was the oldest man ever, yet he died before his father did? Well, the answer to the riddle is that Methuselah's father was Enoch. And the Bible tells us 
Enoch walked with God, then he was no more, because God took him away. Enoch was one of the two people in the Bible who never faced death. The other was Elijah. Anyway, back to Noah, who was the 10th pre-flood patriarch. In Noah's day, God decided that he was going to bring judgment on the world. We read in Genesis, The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. So God planned to send a worldwide flood, and with the flood the Lord brought to an end the first ten generations. Only Noah and his family were spared. As we read in Genesis chapter 11, Noah had three sons, Shem, Japheth, and Ham. Then in the rest of this chapter, we have another listing of generations, which extended from Shem to Abraham. Do you want to take a guess as to how many generations are listed? You got it. Ten. Abraham was the tenth generation from Shem. Isn't it interesting how God uses the number ten to express these specific time frames in the Old Testament historical record? In the life of Abraham, the number 10 shows up twice. The first time is in Genesis chapter 14. Abraham's nephew Lot and his family were living in the city of Sodom. One day, a coalition of four kings attacked Sodom and Gomorrah and stole all of the goods and took captive some of the people as well. Lot was among the captives. Abraham, who is still called Abram at this point in his life, along with his 318 trained servants, conducted a successful rescue mission. Lot was saved. And when Abraham returned home, he was met by a man by the name of Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, a city to be known in the future as Jerusalem. And he was also a priest of God Most High. Melchizedek blessed Abraham and Abraham responded by giving Melchizedek a tenth, or a tithe, of everything he had. The second time the number ten shows up is when Abraham pleads with God not to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, because nephew Lot and his family still live there. Even though the people in these cities were as wicked as the people of Noah's day. Abraham asked God if he would destroy the cities if there were, say, 50 righteous people living there. When God said he wouldn't destroy the cities for the sake of the 50, Abraham asked God, well, what if there are 45 righteous people? Then what if there are 40, 30, 20? Finally, Abraham asked, what if only 10 righteous people can be found there? God promised Abraham, that he would not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if ten righteous people could be found. Sadly, there weren't even ten. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, was the first person in the Bible to speak about giving an offering to God in the amount of a tenth or a tithe. After fleeing for his life uh, because Esau wanted to kill him for stealing his birthright blessing, Jacob arrived at Bethel. There Jacob experienced the stairway to heaven dream with angels going up and down the staircase. Jacob awoke from that dream and made a vow. If God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, 
and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear, so that I return safely to my father's house. Then the Lord will be my God, and this stone I have set up as a pillar will be God's house, and all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. There'll be more to say about the tithe in just a bit. It isn't until the book of Exodus that we find more numerous examples of the number 10. One of the more familiar tens in the Bible is the 10 plagues. During the life of Moses, around 1500 BC, God's chosen people, the Israelites, were living in slavery in the land of Egypt. Moses made a repeated request of the Pharaoh to allow the people to travel three days out into the desert to worship their God, Yahweh. When Pharaoh refused to allow it, God punished Egypt with a series of ten plagues. It's interesting to note that each of the plagues corresponded with one of the gods or goddesses that the Egyptians worshipped. Yahweh used their own false gods against them. The ten plagues proved to both Egypt and Israel who the real true God was. Ten Egyptian gods and goddesses smacked down by the one all-powerful creator God. The first plague was the Nile River being turned into blood. Happy, H-A-P-Y, was the Egyptian god of the Nile. The second plague was the frogs. Haket was the goddess of fertility and water. The plague of gnats or lice stood in opposition to Geb, the god of the earth. The fourth plague was that of the flies. Capri was the god of creation, also the movement of the sun and rebirth. The plague on the livestock and cattle, that stood in opposition of Hathor, goddess of love and protection. A lot of protection she provided, huh? Sixth was the plague of boils. Isis was the goddess of healing. The plague of hail. Newt was the goddess of the sky. The eighth plague was that of the locust. Seth was the god of storms and disorder. Number nine was the plague of darkness. Ra, the sun god. Wonder what he thought about that. And finally, the tenth plague was the plague of the firstborn. Pharaoh, who was considered a god, was the ultimate power of Egypt over life and death. Each of the ten plagues targeted an Egyptian god or goddess who were powerless to stand up to the one true God. Probably the most well-known ten in the Bible is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are listed in two places, Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. However, in neither chapter are the commandments actually numbered. They're just listed. Now keep that in mind with what's next. Did you know that there is not universal agreement on what the Ten Commandments are? In fact, there are two different listings of the Ten Commandments in the Christian Church. The differences involve the first two commandments and the last two. Everyone in Christianity agrees with the commandments in the middle, that we are not to misuse the name of the Lord our God, that we are to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, we are to honor our father and mother, we shouldn't murder, shouldn't commit adultery, shouldn't steal, and we shouldn't tell lies about our neighbors. 
With these there is agreement. Here's where there's disagreement. Both versions of the Ten Commandments have as the first commandment, you shall have no other gods. In one version, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll call it version A, has as the second commandment, you shall make no idols, which is indeed found in both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Version A also has one commandment about coveting, the tenth one. Total, ten commandments. Now, version B has as the second commandment the one about not misusing the Lord's name. Version B then has two commandments dealing with coveting. The ninth being about not coveting other people's physical stuff. And the tenth commandment about not coveting other people, their servants or their animals. Total, ten commandments. Which version are you most familiar with? Now, if you read Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, you, you can understand why different people number the commandments differently. The version A folks conclude that having no other gods and not making idols are two separate commands, and that coveting is coveting, whether it is something inanimate or something alive and breathing. The version B folks conclude that you shall make no idols is just the further explanation of you shall have no other gods, and that there are different types of coveting, non-living things and living things. But that leads us to another question. How do we know that there are 10 commandments and not 9 or 11? On the basis of reading Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5, I, I think you could make a case for either 9, 10, or 11. So how do we know that there are exactly 10? Well, we don't have to guess. God revealed the number through Moses in multiple places in the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus chapter 34, we are told about Moses' days up on Mount Sinai. Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. By the way, we'll, we'll talk about the number 40 in a future episode. He was up there 40 days and 40 nights without eating bread or drinking water. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And in the book of Deuteronomy, there are two other references specifically to the Ten Commandments. So, have you ever wondered how we got to the two versions of the Ten Commandments that we have today? Well, you can thank, or blame, your choice, two Christian scholars, one by the name of Origen of Alexandria, a city in Egypt, who lived around 200 A.D., and the other was a guy by the name of Augustine of Hippo. He was from the north coast of Africa, which would be the country of Algeria today. Origen was the creator of version A. Augustine, who lived 200 years later, was the author of version B. So, who today subscribes to version A and who today subscribes to version B? Since Augustine was an influential scholar for the Western Church in Rome, Roman Catholics subscribed to version B. And since Martin Luther started out as an Augustinian monk who valued Augustine's teaching, especially on grace, original sin, the Trinity, among others, Lutherans today also subscribe to version B. The Eastern Church, often referred to as the Orthodox Church, did not agree with some of Augustine's teachings. 
So they did not also accept the version of his version of the Ten Commandments. The Orthodox Church of today, as well as most other Protestant churches, subscribe to Origen's version of the Ten Commandments. Now you know. There's something else worth mentioning about the Ten Commandments. In version A, the first four commandments deal with the relationship between God and mankind. In version B, it's the first three commandments. The remaining commandments in either version deal with the relationship of people to people. Now, what Augustine and Origen would agree on is, is that all the words in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5 originated from God and serve as the complete summary of God's will for his people, no matter how you break out the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments reflect God's expectations for his chosen people and also serve as a way to reveal his holiness and perfection, which, unfortunately, no sinful human being has ever been able to attain. Thankfully, Jesus was able to keep God's law perfectly, and he did it for us. He did it in our place. Along with receiving the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai, Moses also received many more of God's requirements that would govern the Israelites' lives, both civil laws and laws pertaining to their worship life. For example, during the tenth plague in Egypt, the Israelites were given the details for celebrating the Passover, which included sacrificing a lamb and painting their doorposts with blood so the angel of death would pass over their homes and spare the firstborn male from being put to death. On Mount Sinai, God gave instructions for future celebrations of the Passover. It was always to occur on the tenth day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. Then, in a similar way, the high priest was to enter into the inner room of the tabernacle on the Day of Atonement to sprinkle blood on the Ark of the Covenant. This was to happen every year on the tenth day of the seventh month. The number ten was woven into the worship lives of God's Old Testament people. Let's talk a little bit about tithing. At Mount Sinai, God instructed Moses about the concept of first fruits giving. In the last chapter of Leviticus, we read, A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. These gifts were a reminder that everything belonged to God, and a portion was given back to God to thank Him for what they had received. The practice of tithing continued throughout the Old Testament. In their worship life, God's people brought tithes to the tabernacle, and later the temple, as an act of worship. These offerings were also used to help support the temple and those who served at the temple. When we get to the New Testament, there is one reference in the Gospels to the tithe. In the book of Matthew, we hear that on one occasion, Jesus condemned the teachers of the law for their hypocrisy. These religious leaders worked hard to follow every law to the letter, but paid no attention to what was in their heart. Jesus said, Woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting 
the former. In the Apostle Paul's letters to the Corinthians, he also wrote about percentage first fruits giving. On the first day of every week, set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Paul, however, doesn't specify how much that was to be. Many Christians today use the tithe as a benchmark for saying thank you to God for all of his blessings. Back to the Old Testament. When Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, the number 10 shows up a couple of times. In the temple, there were 10 basins for washing, 10 lampstands, and 10 tables, all used in making the sacrifices to God. One of the more interesting examples of 10 in the Bible is a miracle that God performed during the life of King Hezekiah. One day, God sent the prophet Isaiah to the king's palace to inform Hezekiah that he was going to die. Hezekiah would have been around 39 years old at this time. Upon hearing this, Hezekiah prayed to God for healing. God heard his prayer, and even before Isaiah left the courtyard of the palace, God told him to go back inside to Hezekiah and tell him that God had answered his prayer for healing, that the Lord would give him another 15 years of life, and that in three days Hezekiah would be healthy enough to go to the temple. Then Hezekiah asked for a sign that this would indeed happen. The Lord promised the sign and gave Hezekiah a choice. It involved the stairway of Ahaz, which was a stairway going up to the temple. The Lord said to Hezekiah, Do you want the shadow caused by the sun moving across the sky to advance ten steps or go backward ten steps? Well, Hezekiah reasoned that it was normal for the shadow to advance, to go up the steps, as the sun got lower in the sky. So Hezekiah asked that the shadow go back ten steps. In order to give Hezekiah this sign, the Lord God of the universe altered the sun and earth's normal routine, and the shadow went back ten steps on the stairway of Ahaz. And we sometimes doubt that God's in control of this universe? Give me a break. In Jesus' three-year ministry, he used the number 10 in parables that he taught. The parable of the 10 virgins who were awaiting the bridegroom, the parable of the 10 talents, and the parable of the 10 minas. Jesus also healed the 10 lepers, of whom only one returned to thank him. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised that the Holy Spirit would come. And the time between Jesus' ascension and the Holy Spirit's coming on Pentecost was 10 days. The last two tens that we want to mention are related to each other. One is in Daniel chapter 7 and the other is in Revelation 12. The ten horns in Daniel are part of a vision given to Daniel about four beasts which would be future kingdoms. And if you want to learn more about this, check out my podcast on the number four in this series. In the fourth kingdom of Daniel's vision, there is a beast with ten horns, which we are told are ten kings. This fourth beast is the Roman Empire, and the ten succeeding kings are those who ruled after the Roman Empire disintegrated. And then, after these ten kings, another ruler would arise who would oppress God's people. In Revelation chapter 12, the Apostle John sees a vision of an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and seven crowns on his seven heads. 
A few verses later, this dragon is revealed to be Satan himself, who wants to lead astray God's people. Now, we don't have time in this episode to dig deeper. But in chapter 13, we meet two beasts who are allies of Satan. The first one is identified as the world governments that Satan uses to attack God's people. The second beast masquerades as a substitute Christ and is found within not the government, but the church. The Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians called this beast a man of lawlessness. In Revelation 13, he is given a number, 666. And the Apostle John in two of his three letters refers to him as Antichrist, a substitute Christ. The number 10, when referring to Satan, symbolizes the total, the complete evil that Satan is. Never underestimate him, but don't fear him either. Not when you have Christ on your side. We'll be coming back to the number 10 three episodes from now when we explore multiples of the numbers that we've already discussed. Then in the 10th and final episode of this series, I'll talk a little more about the number 666. When you come across the number 10 in your Bible reading, think of completeness, of God's perfection, and of our obedience. In our next episode, we'll explore the number 12, the number for the church. Until then, if you have any thoughts or questions about this podcast, please email me at bruce at timeofgrace.org. I'd love to hear from you. And if you want to learn more about Satan and the fact that he is pure evil, I wrote a short book called Give Satan the Credit He is Due. You can find it at timeofgrace.org. Just click on the store button. Thanks for listening, and God bless.